Good morning, everyone. If this is your first time at Crossroads, welcome. I hope you can find a place to settle in and pray today. But at this time in the service, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles and consider the gospel of Jesus Christ as it is revealed to us in the scriptures. My name is Dan Mike, and I've cobbled, toge- <laughs> I've cobbled together uh, some thoughts and challenges for you from John chapter 1. As a community, we've decided to start studying the Gospel of John. It is one of four books of the Bible that chronicles the life, ministry, and passion of Jesus Christ. And so if you would turn to John chapter 1, we have been uh, studying the first 18 verses. This will be the third week and last week for that. Um, And as Rod opened this up two weeks ago, I remember him saying he felt like he was standing on the edge of an ocean, uh, just to speak to the way that this prologue feels, like you're, the, the depth and the breadth of it, it, it's just so intense and massive, and the thought crossed my mind this week that just as far as like beginnings to literature goes, this is kind of probably one of the most famous uh, things, I, th- I mean, and I don't roll your eyes at me just yet. I mean, I know that I am steeped in Christian culture, somewhat biased to the Bible and all that, but I mean, I was really trying to think of some famous openings to, in, in literature. And, and if I said, call me Ishmael, you know, a lot of you would understand what story that's coming from, but it still doesn't scratch the surface on that. I mean, if I say, music be the food of love, Right, you would know that the next line, right? Most of us would get and you know play on, right? But when I read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were created through Him. Not one thing that was created was created without Him. He held the life. In Him was life. In him was life, and that life is the light of man, and it is shining in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcome it. I mean, come on, who writes this stuff? John has an agenda with this letter that he wrote, and I think it's important for us to kind of keep as an underpinning as we study this. I don't... I don't know about you, I'm not super interested in just us being the experts on John, and so, you know, we've got all the John verses figured out. Why did he write this? And why did he think of these things to say in light of that agenda? In chapter 20, verse 30, John says, I have written these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you would receive life in his name. This is an evangelistic effort. If you don't know what the word evangelism means, it just means somebody uh, is trying to win someone over to Christ. Someone introduced somebody to to Jesus, to the gospel. When I was growing up, this this was an actual official thing. Like an evangelist would come to our church and like just do a gospel message. And I'm sure they only had one or two, which makes me kind of think maybe I should have been an evangelist. Then I could just have one sermon that I just, you know, but... There's still time. Um, I'm not Mr. Evangelist, I don't think. I, I, I definitely 
am just into being here and being with you all, but I do think that as a Christian, the heart of having someone come to know Jesus is in all of us. And we should probably ask John, teach us how to talk about Jesus. Tell us the important things to talk about. Well, what was John's context? John did a life and ministry in a really big city called Ephesus. We have a whole letter devoted to it, the, the book of Ephesians. This is a city that was the, in the top three most populated cities in the Roman world. Alexandria and Rome were the only ones that beat it. Though it was not the capital of Roman, the province of Asia, that was Pergamum, it still was regarded as the gem, the crown jewel of the Roman cities of Asia. Situated on the western coast of Turkey, it became a place that's just close enough to sea that it would attract all the commerce from the water, but then it would also be just close enough to the major trade routes of land that it became a hub for both. This drew in people, money, uh, culture, religion, all intersecting in this place. As we continue to study the Gospel of John, more and more of that nuance is going to be uh, brought out, so I don't have to, to really belabor it now, but suffice it to say, this is, a, this is a city full of idolatry and full of Western thinking. And a lot of times in the Bible, you know, we have to try and put ourselves into the worldview of the Jewish people and the worldview of ancient Israel. And it sometimes is a little bit harder for us. As Rod described last week with this whole game about uh, abstract thinking versus um, concrete thinking. Remember what he was talking about? He threw out names of God. That's sort of the game we often have to play. But imagine someone were to write a book to people who have some sort of Western uh, worldview. I think it'd be very important for us if we want to continue to minister to our Western culture in this city to ask ourselves, John, tell us what's important to talk about. Give us some tips about how to uh, minister to people in this context. Don't get me wrong, it's not like this isn't encouraging for Christians as well. But like I said, I just want to keep in our minds that this is something that was meant to be evangelistic. And so let it be that. Let it, let it teach you and encourage you um, as we study it. With that in mind, before I get too much farther, I'd like to read to you the verses uh, that I have in mind today. So if you'd stand with me for the reading of John 1, 14 to 18. John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John testified concerning him, crying out, saying, this is the one of whom I said, he, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of of his grace we have received grace upon grace, one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through, finally, 17 verses into this, Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only Son, 
who is at the Father's right hand, has made him known to us. Amen. Why did John write these, these verses and why did he bring these themes into it? I mean, when I was uh, a young, when I was a teenager, I was given a Bible. I think it was just a New Testament. I, I can distinctly remember it was blue, skinny, the one that you could kind of hide in your jacket or whatever. And, and I like to pretend like I was reading the Bible, but I wasn't. I would just look at the tables and charts and measurements in the back or the pictures, or anything but the Bible verses. I don't know why. And I remember seeing an article that said uh, how to witness to someone. And I'll never forget what it said. It has some Bible verses, you know, to help you along. But it started with the question, ask somebody, if you died tonight, where would you go? I never had the courage to actually ask somebody this because I was terrified by that question myself. I'm still terrified by that. If somebody came out to me and said that to me, I would be like, why? Are you threatening me or something? Like, <laughs> why do I have to figure that out right now? I have an ax to grind with these instant hypotheticals. At some point, somebody came up with, I don't know, 55-gallon drum of peanut butter, and they're like, you know what? We got to sell this thing. So what if the clocks don't turn to 2,000, and so uh, you better get ready and figure out what, what, what would happen if the, the power went out tonight and we couldn't go to Meyer tomorrow. You got to figure this out. All these things that are like this instant trauma that happens to us just is so stressful. John did not start his evangelistic letter by looking to some hypothetical in the future. He started by looking to the past. Brilliantly, as Rod has given us a master's course in the last two weeks on, he drew in his audience with a contextualized uh, word, lagas. This is a word that they knew, that, that, that his town and culture was familiar with. This word is the ground of being, the source of everything that is living, the, the, the center of it all. But then he places that concept into his own story, the Hebraic tradition of, uh, in, of the Bible. Kind of notable at this point to say, you know, it's tempting when one is trying to evangelize to make a strong connection. Of course, I think you should, but not at the expense of your own belief. <laughs> You know, I, I can see it kind of going sideways, being like, oh, you believe in this God, I believe in that guy. It's kind of the same thing. But John does not let the Lagos necessarily just live out there in ambiguity. He says, I'm going to place it in the tradition of the past that I am familiar with. And then he tells us a story with that element in it. I'm thinking, is he even allowed to do this? He changed a Bible verse. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God, he amends it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Indeed, it was God. John is bringing their context into his context, the story at the beginning of the Bible. I think this is smart. When we want to talk about God to somebody it's tempting in our culture to kind of find a guru to point to. 
kind of say, this is, the, this is the rabbi that I have. But I'm not sure if that's a great place to start because if I want to talk about God to you, I want to talk about the most important, biggest thing I can think of. Because if you don't start at the most wonderful, biggest character that you can comprehend, which would be the person that started and is at the center of everything, then who's to say that your guy is better than my guy, if your guy is just smarter than... No, we have to start with a big God who has a big story to tell and who solves big problems. Because at the end of the day, those are the problems that we want to speak to in our culture. So what is the big story that he tells? He talks about creation. In the beginning was the word. He created everything. And this big God solves a big problem. As you are drawn into, he's, he's hooked them, drawn into the story of Genesis. There is a big problem that is revealed because it addresses a problem that mankind has. Interesting, the nuance that uh, he puts here of the word and God being together at creation. When paired with the idea that in the creation story in the Bible, there's like plural language uh, when regards to creating mankind. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God. Now just imagine. And then they said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Genesis 1.26. Okay, we're all on the same page so far. Those are all Bible verses. Big deal, Dan. Well, no surprise to me then when we read in chapter 2, verse 18, what does God say about the man? Well, there has been a big theme woven through this story of creation, of the goodness of God and the goodness that he sees in creation. But it comes to a screeching halt in 2.18 when it says, you know what, it's not good. There's a not good here. What is the not good that existed before any rebellion or any sin or anything that had happened with the, the snake and all that? What is this not good? It was not good that he was alone. Of course, then the Lord gives him a dog. That's what it says, that he brought to him the animals. That's what you need when you're lonely, is you need a, a, a companion, a pet. He brings in the, the, the animals, but that doesn't solve it, because maybe he's talking about something bigger and different. So the story goes on to say that he brought a woman to the man, and they got married, and that solved all of the problems that he had. <laughs> Isn't that how marriage works? Am I the only one that thought by getting married, it'll fix all of the issues? And I, I put these stories together and I thought, okay, the lonely, not good, create, okay, partner, okay, this is how it works. I need to get fixed through marriage. Now, if you think, just as a side note here, that marriage is going to fix you, it didn't fix his life. It seems like it got a little worse, or at least before he could live in the garden. Okay, now he's got to do his own gardening. And would that you were to uh, think that the solution to the not good was this union 
it kind of seems like there's an incompetency or at least a, uh, a pattern of incompetency happening with God bringing things to the man that doesn't fix anything. But what if this uh, pattern was sequentially laid out to show more and more of the actual issue in the first place? Anybody that's ever been married will tell you, of course, the marriage is not meant to support the burden that we uh, have for our to satisfy our souls, placing that onto a spouse to, to, to fix you it is going to break the relationship. It, it's too heavy to bear. What our closest relationships do is they expose the things that we hide from everybody else. You might have been able to uh, trick your friends that you didn't have any problems, but trust me, when you get a spouse, there is clarity there is magnification. There is, there, there is truth about what's actually happening in your life. And I'm not saying it to be funny. You can't hide anymore the not good that's echoing throughout your life. And everybody has this not good that's in them. And so what this story shows is that there's a big problem in mankind. And that problem continues to develop and add insult to injury and they try and fix it with different things and it just gets worse. And our world needs us to speak to this not good. Our world is desperate to try and find something that will fix it and will help and through all kinds of different uh, pleasure or, or, or validation or comforts or security to try and help this not good that's ringing out throughout uh, my past and through my relationships and through my day to day. Help me figure this out. And I want to point to a God who from the very beginning goes on record saying, I see it. I see the not good that's there. And that is not the plan. I do not want you to stay like that. That's not good. And the word becomes flesh. And this whole story of a, of, of a, of a, per, of a people group who were made to be with God, but aren't are then now somehow caught up into the God who said, you know what, I will go this far to make sure that we are with, and then I'm gonna bring you into uh, the sacred harmony of the Trinity that I was in before, and I will bring you in, in Christ. The with God peace that is put into the DNA of mankind is solved when we see God say, I'm gonna be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will not leave you alone. I will not leave you off to yourself. I design for you to be with me and I will make a way for that to be possible. The word became flesh. He does this full of grace and full of truth. It says that two times in uh, this paragraph. What does it mean to be full of grace and full of truth uh, that he brought that into uh, this world? Well, as I was thinking about it this week, I think I could boil down full of grace and full of truth to one word, forgiveness. You have to have full truth in order to get forgiveness because you have to acknowledge the thing that is actually wrong, the thing that you actually did to be known and exposed and, and for that to be on the table. 
But it's not just truth upon truth that he, he brought to us. There's also grace, which says, I know what you did, and I'm going to pay for it. I'm going to cover you. I am going to protect. I, while you were yet sinners, I died for you. I want to fix this, and I am full of grace for you. I am aimed at you, and I want you to know there is forgiveness. When's the last time you confirmed that in your relationships uh, that, that you're in in your life? When is the last time you said that I am, I am living in a consistent way with somebody who has provided forgiveness by knowing what I did wrong but saying, I've got grace for you? What story are you telling the world? Is it a story of a big God who solves big problems? A story of God who, a God who said, I am going to become like you, to sympathize with you, to, to know all of the things that you know and feel all of the feelings that you feel. This incarnation, if you will, was not a footnote on the story of the life of God. He still bears the wounds in his hands. The glorified, the risen Christ, he reached out his hands to his disciple and said, I'm keeping them. And I want you to see it now and forevermore, how much I am willing to do for you, how much I love you. I want you to see this is not something that I want to forget about. I want you to know this is how much I love you. The word became flesh. You ever feel like God doesn't know how you feel? At the very, okay, so the, the hardest thing that we can think of is these moments of pain and doubt, right, that we're, we're all afraid of feeling like, you know, the thing that you thought was so true is not true or whatever. And at the very center of our faith, we have somebody who left where he was and did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but let it go, and being found in human likeness, he had moments where he felt that abandonment, where he was in the garden, and he's scratching his head saying, I don't know, is there another way? <laughs> if there be another way, just let me know, but I'm going with you. I mean, on the cross, he, he, he's struggling, he's forsaken, he's abandoned, and... It, you have a high priest who is able to sympathize with your weakness, and he knows all of the feelings that we feel. The word became flesh. Providing a way where there was no way, where there was this big, thick curtain that separated us from God that we so long ago put up with our decisions. He tore it down, and he said, I'm gonna make a way for you guys to go home. To back to the cool breeze of the garden and the warm breath of the spirit where you belong. Do you ever think about the connection that we have with the Trinity? It's kind of hard to comprehend or understand, but I mean, it's there. Romans 8 uh, kind of describes it at one point where it says, when we in our weakness do not know what to pray, the spirit intercedes for us with inarticulate words. So, some words, that groans that words cannot express. 
The Spirit's that close to you. He's put inside of you. He knows how to say the feelings that you're feeling. And he who searches the heart of man, thank you, God, he knows the mind of the Spirit, for he always prays according to the will of the Father. All of this sacred union working together and coming out of us and including us because the word became flesh and he ascended to the right hand of the Father, being the champion for all of his brothers and sisters for the first time that not good was starting to become solved. Another theme that seems to be brought into this is then what happens next? The gospel that I've just sort of been describing to you about Jesus catch, catching us all into himself and, and bringing us back to the right hand of the Father um, is, is all well and good. But the intention of the gospel is not for us to sit on it and to hide it. This is, I think, why there's all these references to grace and Moses and, you know, if you really just pause and think about it, what does Moses have to do with this? Verse 17. Why is he saying Moses brought the first grace and then grace truth came through Christ, grace upon grace, all that? I think it has something to do with the reference before in verse 14 about the dwelling. And I'm just making this connect. If you don't buy it, that's fine. This is the verb form of the word used for tabernacle. And some translations even write it in. The word became flesh and tabernacled. Um, and then the next line, it kind of seems a little telling to say, and then we saw the glory. I mean, that's kind of a big part of the story, excuse me, of the tabernacle, is the glory that Israel, uh, that dwelled in the midst of Israel. Now, bringing up that story is telling to me because this is one of those things uh, in the history of Israel that they didn't get right. This all started at Mount Sinai. They came to the mountain. They received the Torah. They made their commitment. There was fire. There was mission. There was calling. You are a kingdom of priests. And then God gave them a way to make a mobile Sinai. He, he was able to take all that fire and that glory and then put it into the tabernacle so that they were con to continue to move out. Else they would have stayed in the wilderness, stayed separate from everybody, just enjoying their bread and not committing to going out and blessing the world like God wanted. Now, they, I'm, I don't think they ever really got this right. <laughs> It seems like pretty quickly it turned into a thing of power. They wanted to take this good luck charm into battle. They wanted to use this as kind of their uh, energy, as like w taking the presence of God for granted or using it as something that made them uh, more elite, pushing other people down. This is part and parcel to the frustration that we see probably in Jesus. How did, I mean, we'll see it in, in just a few weeks from now, how he was so frustrated to see the way that the temple worship was going on and uh, how they were using this to their own advantage. And he says, to them, my father's house was meant to be a house of prayer for everybody. What are you doing? 
tears are coming down his cheeks as he sees Jerusalem. And he's like <coughs> anticipating that they want him to lead a war for them. If only you had known the things that made for peace. And in his flesh, he became the, the tabernacle and fulfilled the calling of going into the world and being the blessing for all nations. And, and, and he was able to do both at the same time, fulfilling this whole uh, story. But why, did bring that, why would John bring that up in his uh, evangelistic letter? I think because as you continue to talk about who God is, you never want to let people think this is just your ticket for you. This is something that is going to be an empowering presence in your life so that you are able to be God's agent of blessing in this world. May it never be that we become a people who just accumulate all of the gospel and all of the good stuff into our lives and then just sit on it for whatever reason. Never turn around and say, I have been given the empowering presence of God so that I can take this into my family, workplace, and community. The beauty of Jesus becoming flesh and then leaving is that he did not set up a centralized place of worship. He actually decentralized and he placed his glory into all of us and said, go out into the world and be the kingdom of priests that you're always meant to be. And the word who became flesh, who made the invisible God known to us, is now becoming flesh in all of us as we make God known to the rest of the world. Let me finish with uh, seems to be one of my favorite verses these days is a, an articulation of this as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, just after that famous verse that says, uh, you know, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. We love to quote that verse. Verse 18 says, all of this has come from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ and not counting men's sins against them anymore. And he has committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We carry that treasure and that message about God reconciling the world to himself and not counting sins against him anymore like a treasure put in an earthen vessel, shining out for the world to see through our imperfections. But I wonder, if you're telling a story to the world, are you telling them this story of forgiveness, of reconciliation, where we let go of our petty differences and let go of the things that we use to hold power over someone else's head because they did something we think is wrong? Or are you lining up and being the incarnation, if you will, of the gospel that you're called to be. Today, thinking through some of this stuff, and we've set up communion as well for you to enjoy, and we put tables in the back and tables in the front, and wanna invite you to do this. Remember the one who became flesh, 
And that flesh was broken for our sin and for our forgiveness. And the one whose blood was poured out for us to create a new covenant for us to live in. As you take that in, also then I wanna encourage you to keep it as you go and carry out that, uh, that legacy into your world. We set up a prayer here for you to think through um, and pray through, but before that, I'd like to say a prayer for us all, so please pray with me. Holy Spirit, if there's just one name that you could put on each of our hearts of somebody who doesn't know you, do so, do so now. Put a name on our hearts of somebody who doesn't know you that we can show who you are to them. Give us the courage and the ability to be the incarnation of your word, of your message, the gospel. If there's any of us here who just haven't been interacting with the greatness of who you are, I pray that you would uh, blow them away with your splendor of the God of all creation. If there's any of us here who have been trying to be uh, fixing the not good in our hearts through uh, other things that have been created, please help us to turn from that, to repent and to let that go and to come to you, the only person or only being that can give us satisfaction and life. There's any of us who have forgotten our calling to go out into this world and make disciples, to, to convince them to believe that you are the Son of God and in believing in you, they would have life. Then help us to uh, pick up that responsibility and cherish it not in a guilt and a shame kind of way, but in a way that just uh, is so excited to bring that life that you give to everywhere that we go. Amen.